think I'm cute I know I'm sexy I've got the looks The drives are cool While I've got the mo- Welcome to the Walder Sportscast with your host, Chris Walder. Welcome everyone to episode 12 of the Walder Sportscast. I'm your host, Chris Walder. And if you'd like to reach out to me on social media, of course, feel free to on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports. On today's show, I'll be joined by a good friend of mine, Joseph Cacharo, who's currently a senior NBA writer down at The Score and one half of the Pound the Rock podcast alongside Joe Wolfon. Uh, Cash, as I'll be referring to him as during the interview, just a heads up. He was my supervising editor for a stint during my time with the company and is extremely knowledgeable when it comes to basketball and is just an all-around great guy. To the best of my knowledge, he's one of the longest tenured writers at The Score, dating back to his time as one of the brains behind the OG Toronto Raptors blog, properly titled Raptor Blog. So I'm very much looking forward to chatting it up with Cash. The return of the NBA regular season is soon upon us, so we have a lot to talk about. But before I bring Cash on, I of course have to drop a cheap plug on everyone as I do every episode by encouraging you to check out my last interview with legendary Toronto Raptors broadcaster Jack Armstrong, which I can now safely cross off of my bucket list because that's something I've wanted to do for such a long time. Jack was extremely generous and open with his answers, and believe me when I say that there was so much more I wanted to ask him, so... Hopefully, somewhere down the road, him and I can do this once again. With that being said, though, Joseph Kasharo will be joining me after this quick break, so keep it locked. Joining me now is a senior NBA writer for The Score in downtown Toronto and the co-host of the Pound the Rock podcast, Joseph Cacharo, and not Joseph Cass, as I so eloquently called him when I first started at The Score four years ago. Cash, welcome to the program. What's going on, man? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Are you are you going to tell the Cass story or what? Oh, uh, we're definitely going to get into what you and William Liu did to me during my first couple of weeks on the job. We'll get to that later in the show. But uh, first off, buddy, again, thank you so much for coming on. I just want to ask you, for someone who, who writes and chats about basketball as much as you do, how would you describe the past several months for yourself in that role? Since there was like obviously a large stretch of just no news coming out due to the league shutting down because of the, of course, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. How have you gone about you know, being creative and creating content when there's very little fresh news emerging from the league. Yeah, it's been difficult, man. I won't lie to you. Um, you know, obviously, I think myself and uh, like a lot of people in the industry probably try to stay, um, you know, level-headed and, and not take things for granted and realize that, um, one, we're very, like, fortunate to be able to do what we do. But two, um, you know, being a little more pressed for content and maybe not having uh, games going is a very minor inconvenience in the grand scheme of things when you kind of look at what's going on in the world right now. So mm-hmm. try to stay level headed that way in terms of actually producing content. Yeah, it's just about getting creative. You know, we've done um, a lot of stuff related to old uh, moments or games or players. Um, I did something actually uh, where I, I wrote an oral history on 
essentially Steve Nash's first season with the Suns, but not not so much the season with the Suns, but um, a lot of people forgot that after the Mavs let him walk in free agency because Mark Cuban straight up said he did not think Steve Nash was worth what the Suns were willing to pay him. Mm -hmm. Nash goes, becomes MVP in his first season in Phoenix and then plays Dallas in the playoffs, in the second round of the playoffs and has literally the best performance of his career against them. So, um, uh, you know, that's an example of something I did where I went back. I actually, it's the my favorite story I've ever gotten to work on. I got to talk to Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, Mike D'Antoni, uh, Quentin Richardson, David Griffin about that whole season and just, you know, what it was like to be on the inside watching Nash do what he was doing, what it was like being on the Dallas side, knowing we let that guy go and then, you know, having to watch him eliminate them. So, you know, that's an example of the kind of stuff um, I was trying to accomplish when there was no games on. We also uh, started going a little more all in on our YouTube page. Of course, YouTube page, not that it was bad, it's just we didn't really um, devote too much attention to it. There wasn't too much original content on it. And I definitely say that during the shutdown, we really tried to focus on that and creating weekly content there. So we started some new series. There's Unfiltered, which is kind of like five to 10 minutes of a hot take um, with some comedic uh, breaks in there for levity. Then we did the story behind where it's like 15 to 20 minutes where we literally just tell the entire life story of some of the game's biggest players. So um, stuff like that, you know, just trying to find a way to stay useful and stay relevant, um, which is a big thing. And, and now hoping that, you know, the NBA can get going here in the next week safely and that it will be a little easier to come up with content. I think it's safe to say that you're one of the OGs of, of Raptors <laughs> blogging on the web with what you and Scott Carefoot had going at Raptor blog back in the day, a proper name, of course. So <laughs> so you've seen the Raptors blogosphere kind of grow in a big way with a number of sites popping up and a number of writers and, and bloggers getting into the game over the years. What are some of the more prominent changes you've seen in blogging as a whole since you first started as a part of Raptor blog and working for the score in general? I mean, I definitely think that the level of um, knowledge, like like real basketball IQ has gone up over the years. I know at least since I first started, um, and as you mentioned, you know, like I joined, uh, I joined the score really, really young. And mm-hmm. one of the things that allowed me to do is join Raptor blog because Scott Carefoot, who had created Raptor blog, which I'm pretty sure was literally the first Raptors blog. Yes. Um, Carefoot created that, I, I don't even know what year it was, but... Um, I ended up starting at the score as literally an 18-year-old working part-time um, the summer between high school and university in 2007. And then like a, maybe three years, at, two, three years after that, um, I joined Raptor Blog because the score had purchased some like local blogs. Like they, um, they, you know, they went into partnership with Raptor Blog, Drunk Jace fans and all those guys. And so I just kind of was lucky enough to have the opportunity to join Raptor Blog and, and kind of set me on my way. But yeah, I remember back then, you know, we were doing things like even me after every game, I would do like short takeaways. And at the time, no one was really doing that kind of stuff. You know, like you'd go to the newspapers or newspaper sites, at least, or news sites for like more traditional generic recaps. And I know myself at Raptor blog, I'm sure the Raptor Republic guys were doing it too, but like doing more like quick takeaways, talking about the actual game and trying to analyze what was going on in the game, maybe bringing some more lightheartedness to it while also bringing more knowledge to it um you know i'm a big believer that obviously media is important from the perspective of you know being a uh, objective and telling the truth and telling the whole story but sports media i think especially you should be if 
you don't necessarily have to be informing the audience at all time, but you, in my opinion, you need to be either informing them or entertaining them. And the absolute best people in the business are the ones that can do both, right? Who can inform right. you, who can entertain you while informing you. And I think um, what I started to see was that, at least in the Raptors blog world, uh, and I'm sure with other teams as well, in the blogosphere, people that were doing blogs, honestly, were doing that better than the people that were maybe getting paid to actually cover the team or were beat writers or whatever the case may be. And I'm not even saying that's anyone's fault. It's just, you know, maybe different generations, um, the way they came up, certain opportunities, like there were no blogs 20, 30 years ago. So it's unfair to say, you know, why doesn't this middle-aged guy who writes for a paper do it like this? Well, maybe like they just never saw it like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's one thing. It's a very long-winded way of answering your question to say, I think that's been the biggest change that I think because of the knowledge base and the basketball IQ and the the desire to really dive into the details that happened in the blogosphere, I think that ended up permeating the mainstream media. And it's because of kind of that blogosphere that I think we are where we are today with media, where you do have, you know, a, a guy like Zach Lowe, who's widely regarded as the best basketball writer in the business, um, who does get obviously into the nitty gritty and the excess. And I was like, I don't know how much of that uh, would be out there if it wasn't for the blogosphere and the stuff all of us, not just me, were doing, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I noticed this when I worked down at the former Air Canada Centre doing game operations for the Toronto Raptors because I grew up a fan of the team and, and still am to this day, of course. But, you know, being in the trenches and around the day to day and going out on the court and working alongside the mascot and whatnot, maybe, you know, two or three seasons into my job, the magic of what I was doing was sort of lost on me. And everyone around me thought I had the most amazing job, but I was struggling to see that after a while because it was simply my job. So, right. so Cash, have you ever had those moments, whether it's, you know, being in the locker room or out in the gondolas watching games where you find yourself numb to the whole process of what you're doing? Or is the fan in you, you know, so strong that you still feel like, you know, a kid in the candy store whenever you head to a basketball game? Honestly, man, it, I, I really, yeah, try not to feel numb and jaded. And yeah, like there are some times maybe where if I know you know, I'm trying to, I'm running up against the deadline for some long form piece that I've been working on for weeks. And I need, I need a guy that night to talk to me to kind of tie it all together. And I'm like nervous about whether he's going to talk to me post game. And like, those are the nights where, yeah, during the game, I get a little numb to it and I'm more not stressed, but you know, a little, a, a little taken away from being able to appreciate where I am. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I'd say I've been able to avoid that. Um, and, and even one thing I still try to do, you know, I've mentioned this on other pods or talking to even young people who ask me about the industry. One thing I still try to do to this day is um, get there early enough that I can have, even if it's like two minutes to myself um, courtside before anyone's out there even warming up or whatever. And just kind of like take it in and, and look around. And sometimes there's guys out there warming up or sometimes, you know, you can see the anthem singers are, are rehearsing. I'm sure you've seen stuff like that when you work mm -hmm. at Game Ops or... Uh, sometimes Herbie's just practicing his stuff and, and pronunciations, but um, I like taking even just a few minutes, hours before a game to just sit courtside and and look around and kind of take it all in and try to put myself in the frame of mind of like, look, man, this is literally what you've always wanted to do. You've been sports obsessed since you were a kid. You wanted to get into media like you're here now. Don't take it for granted. And honest, I can honestly say that I try to do that as much for a Tuesday night game against Charlotte in January as I do for a finals game. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely try not to ever be jaded by it because I think, I think the, in this industry, the moment you're jaded and kind of feel like it's, 
it's really just a job to show up to the arena and it's a slog and whatever. I think that's kind of when, not necessarily that you need to get out of the industry, but maybe you just need to change in general. Um, right. Because the beauty of this industry is it shouldn't feel like that. Cash, you've covered, I mean, you've done it all. You've covered the NBA All-Star Game. You've you've covered the NBA Finals in person. You, you were in attendance in downtown Toronto for the championship parade for the Toronto Raptors. And I think a lot of aspiring writers can look at you as a blueprint with your hard work and the places you've been and the events you've been able to cover as a result of it. Knowing what you know now as a result of everything you've done to get to this point, if you had a chance to talk to the Joseph Cacharo of over a decade ago that was in school at Ryerson University looking to get his journalism degree, what advice would you give him and what would you tell him about the state of sports media and just journalism as a whole today? I would say... um I would tell him and anyone else in that position now, yeah, I'd say uh, be willing to adapt. You know, even myself, uh, since I've been at The Score, it started as a TV station, then the sale happened and we ended up as a digital-only company. Then I was on a features team that didn't even last a year. Now we're in a, on a features team again and I'm getting to do more video and audio. So, like, one, be willing to adapt and don't tie yourself to... Um, any kind of vision you have of the industry at that time. So like perfect example, when I first got into Ryerson, like at 18, if someone asked me, what do you want to do? I would have said, I want to do sports TV, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what, when I used to say that, like the concept that in 2020, I would be able um, to make a living doing a combination of writing long form features about the A and like NBA and getting to talk to all these professional athletes, but also being able to co-host the podcast and being able to um, report on, produce these like YouTube videos every week. And also, uh, you know, we've got like, we, a couple of years ago, we launched that the score X, like the short form documentary series, but like the idea that a job where all of that would be available in one job, that concept was so foreign to me 13 years ago. And so if someone had said, you can do all that, I'd be like, well, I don't like, I don't know if I really want to do that. I was like, no, no, I want to be on sport in sports TV. But again, so like be willing to adapt, be open-minded to the opportunities that you don't even know exist right now that probably don't exist right now that might be there um, five, 10, 15 years down the line. Um, uh, know your worth and like be, proud of your worth i would say you know i think a lot of times you hear people tell um young people to like do whatever they're gonna do to get their foot on the door and work for free and like while i understand that a you know for the most part people should be paying you for your time in general of course um, and what i would say to that is like if you're if you're gonna take that approach then i'd say kind of do your own thing if because you can nowadays you can start your own blog you can start your own podcast like you just did you can there are so many things you do you can do you can launch your own youtube channel and if you're good enough honestly you'll get recognized on social media and so if it's the kind of thing where people are telling you to work for free then just do it on your own anyway because if you're going to work for free you might as well do it yourself um and so that's another thing in terms of when you do get on with a company and you get a paid job, I'd say, yeah, like definitely don't be afraid to stand up for your worth. I'm not saying, you know, go on rants or whatever at the office that might get yourself in trouble, but definitely, you know, if you believe in your work and your work ethic and your dedication to the company and all that stuff, like don't be afraid to tell your supervisors, your editors, whatever, um, what you think you could be doing or should be doing. And you might not get what you want, but at least you plant the seed. You know, I know myself, what I've seen so much in the industry, not just at the score, but all around the industry, when I talk to people, there are so many people that want to do all these different things. 
And sometimes I'll ask them, you know, have you talked to this person about it? Have you talked to that person about it? And most of the time, the answer is no, because they don't even think it'll be heard or they don't maybe have the most belief in themselves, like whatever the case may be. So my piece of advice would be, unless you verbalize it, you'll never know, right? So just verbalize it, tell your editors, bosses, whoever, what you want to do, what your goals are, what you have in mind, how you want to get there. And maybe it will get turned down, but at least it's out there and the seed has been planted and maybe something does come up eventually. And they do think, you know what? So-and-so said that they might be interested in that, or they think they'd be good at that. At least let's give them a shot. We all started at the bottom. We all started with, you know, zero followers on Twitter. We all had to build ourselves up, build up a, a reputation for ourselves. And good things come to those who are committed to the craft. And I think you're especially uh, one of those people. And it shows with all of the great things that you've been able to do and all of the great writing that you do on a consistent basis. this show on the evening of Wednesday, July 22nd. So a couple of NBA scrimmages to kick off the resumption of the 2019-20 campaign have taken place out in Orlando, with the first being the Magic and the Los Angeles Clippers. From what you've seen thus far, what are your first impressions of the setup, the ambiance, and just the overall presentation? From what I could tell, honestly, I was a little surprised at how normal things looked, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you can, you can tell it's not 100% what it usually is, but at least from a television viewing experience, it looked a lot more normal than I would have imagined. Now, sound-wise, obviously, it's a little different. There's no <laughs> crowd. You know, they're not panning to a crowd after a big shot, and those things you're going to have to get used to. But in terms of just, like, the actual basketball viewing part of it on a TV, to be honest, I didn't think it was that much different. What about you? I'm just trying to get used to it at this point. Again, with yeah. no fans in attendance and no crowd ambiance, it, it's definitely something that we're all going to have to just accept at this point i liked the pa announcer coming on during the nuggets game and started trying to get a let's go nuggets chant going and uh, with no one around to kind of respond to it i thought that was pretty funny but again these are the scrimmages this is still extremely early changes could still be made down the road but for now it's i'm kind of in wait and see mode i'm i'm still kind of flabbergasted by the fact that we have basketball right now it's it's been so long yeah, absolutely, man. And even just from the crowd perspective, as you were saying that, like, and I started to think, like, imagine Dame's series winning shot and wave last year without a crowd. Imagine yeah. Kawhi's four bouncer without a crowd, you know, like, um, <laughs> there's bound to be a some moments like that, maybe to not, not to that degree, but there's bound to be some of those moments if we have a postseason and it's um even just thinking about that now, it's like, imagine one of those things happen and there's just no crowd around to go crazy. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be really, really strange. I'd rather not think about the Kawhi Leonard shot with, with <laughs> no audience interaction. That yeah. It would just be a, the, the sound of just four clanks off the rim yeah. and be a little awkward. But, yeah. uh, but Cash, now that actual basketball is back, do you think that you know the action will distract viewers from important issues that are going on in the world right now, mainly the, the Black Lives Matter movement and COVID-19 pandemic? I hope not. I mean... Look, I, I don't think it will. I'd say this. I think if if someone, if, if a basketball game being on is going to be the difference between whether someone is focusing any energy on something like the Black Lives Matter movement, then, mm-hmm. you know, to me, that would indicate that they probably didn't actually care to begin with, you know? Yeah. And so now there, at the same time, there are some valid arguments that I, uh, you know, I heard the players 
say that I think makes sense. Like I can't remember who it was, but a few of them have mentioned, you know, like uh, if there's games on all day and someone's a hardcore basketball fan, that might be one less person protesting because they want to stay home and watch basketball. And that's a very valid argument. And if, you know, if this was the, if, if the NBA coming back is the difference between these protests and these marches for justice happening or not happening, I think that'd be a problem. But I, maybe it's me being naive. I don't think that will be the case. And again, I think if people are genuinely committed to the cause, um, as I think I am, you know, I know someone like yourself is, and I know a lot of people that are, um, then I don't think they'll let this stop them, whether it's, you know, donations they're making, volunteering their time, not just their money, whatever the case may be. I would hope that basketball coming back doesn't distract that, distract them from that or take them from that. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, again, like, if anything, I would hope that people seeing a fanless NBA, NHL, MLB come back and the measures in place when they do show GMs or whoever it is like on the side with masks. If anything, I would hope that it's a reminder to people to exercise caution and wear a mask and distance and everything so that we can get back eventually to a normal world. Um so again, maybe it's me being a little bit of a uh, an optimist and being a little naive, but I would hope, if anything, um, it makes people even more hyper aware of the fact that we are still living in the middle of a global pandemic that needs our attention. So how has your thought process about the NBA's return evolved over the past several months? Was, was there ever a part of you which thought the league should just cancel the season altogether and start anew when the pandemic dies down? Or was there any anxiety on your part for the players thrusting themselves into a state that even though they're in this bubble is just exploding with with new COVID cases on a daily basis yeah I mean definitely at the beginning I thought they should probably not come back given you know the way the states especially looked a few months ago and then when they started talking about coming back while I still while I understood the health concerns that people were raising and those have not gone away I also was trying to get some people to understand, that, like, look, like, I get that um, in a perfect, safe world, maybe they, they wouldn't have come back. But what mm -hmm. so many people, like, were ignoring for a long time is the fact that the NBA is a multi-billion dollar business run by mostly billionaires yeah. that don't want to lose more money than they have to. And I'm not saying that's the correct way to go about living life, but... Uh, that that is the world we live in, you know, and I don't think that's wrong to acknowledge that, or it's cold-hearted to acknowledge that. That's unfortunate. That just the way it is. And so, once the plan started to be put in place for them to come back, that's when I became of the mind of like, look, this thing is coming back. We can complain about it, we can do whatever, but the point is, it's coming back, okay? And so, uh, there were so many people that you know would spend hours on social media talking about like how wrong it is to come back. Why are they come back? It's at some point you have to accept they were coming back and whatever we tweeted about it was not going to change it. Now, having said that, when they picked Florida, you know, I was at the time I was okay with it because Disney and Vegas seemed to be the only places they could really pull off the type of bubble they wanted to pull off. Yeah. But once the numbers started exploding in Florida, that's when I started having reservations again about whether they should do this because, you know, it's not just about sending the players into this cesspool of a state. It's also about the fact like, what is it going to look like? And, and forget the optics of it. Just what's it going to be like if, you know, Florida is a state of like mass cases and deaths and hospitals and ICUs at capacity. And then in this little safe zone of a bubble, the NBA is going on happy go lucky with 
multi-million dollar athletes protected in this little safe zone. Meanwhile, the world directly outside of that safe zone is burning from this pandemic, deadly pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that still concerns me, you know? So I, I've gone back and forth on it, to be honest. There are days when I'm like, you know, this is happening. It's it, There's too much money at stake. People just need to accept that. And there's other days where I think like, man, what are they doing? How are they going to pull this off? Um, but, you know, as I've been saying on Pound the Rock pretty much every week, as fans, again, as long as people are still giving their attention to the push for social justice right now, as long as people are doing right by themselves in terms of wearing a mask, distancing, trying to protect other people, then I don't think we should feel guilty about being excited that basketball is coming back. Because whether we're just crazy fans or, you know, like us actually in the industry who rely on the games coming back to literally make a living, I don't think we should feel guilty about being excited for that. I think with everyone playing under one roof out in Orlando and, and the top teams having no real advantage with home court being completely taken out of the equation here, this is definitely the most level playing field we'll likely ever see once the NBA playoffs get underway. So while it's easy to say that the championship will ultimately fall in the hands of a team you know, like, like the Milwaukee Bucks, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Los Angeles Clippers... If there was ever a year for a team to rise up and snag Larry O'B against all odds, I think it would be this one. So, Cash, outside of those big three teams that everyone considers favorites, is there one or two other squads out there that you think could realistically not just make the finals, but win it all? I think... um... Look, I still think, not to be the hometown guy, but I still think the Raps have a legitimate chance to get back to the finals. I think they are built in a way that they can trouble and potentially beat Milwaukee. Um, I think the way Miami's built, especially, is almost like Milwaukee's kryptonite, and you could see that in their two matchups this season. Yeah. But outside, if, if, if we're going to look outside the top three and maybe don't want to go to Toronto because it's like the hometown thing, <laughs> I would say the two teams that stick out as kind of dark horses are probably Philly and Houston because... Mm-hmm. Look, Philly in the preseason was my pick to win the East and then lose to the Lakers in the finals. I just thought their sheer size and their collection of talent, while it doesn't always fit together on the offensive end, and we know the, the story there with Embiid and Simmons, I just thought their defensive ceiling, their length, their again, their sheer size, and their overall abundance of talent stacked against anyone else in the East, I thought would prevail in a seven-game series. And then obviously their season's kind of been a bit of a dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You mentioned it. It's a level playing field. You know, the big pro- one of the big problems of Philly is they couldn't win on the road. The fascinating thing in Orlando is going to be like, well, do the Sixers look like the team that went absolutely nuts at home throughout the season? Or are they because no team is technically at a road disadvantage? Or because no team has a home court advantage, are they going to look like the team that shit the bed on the road all season? Yeah. Um, and then there's the the fact that they go into it pretty healthy. Ben Simmons is back compared to a lot of other teams. And Philly is now one of the healthier teams. So like if all things are equal, plus the, the, the layoff between when the season was suspended and now is longer in some situations than a traditional off season. So there's also like no indication that there's going to be a carryover. You know what I mean? It's almost mm-hmm. like going into a new season where you can't just go by what happened six months ago. So like maybe what happened during the season doesn't matter. And now it's really just going to be about, okay, these are the rosters going in. Who's the best one? And if you don't allow yourself to be skewed by what happened between October and March, I think Philly's maybe got as good a chance as anyone in the East. And then in the West, look, I can't see Houston beating either of the LA teams four of seven, but at the same time, they've got the star power with Harden and Westbrook. 
you know, if people were paying any attention, Westbrook the last two months of the season looked like prime Westbrook again. He was back to rampaging the rim instead of settling for shots. It, he got a lot better when they uh, were without, without Capella because there was no one clogging the middle. You know, their size is an issue, obviously, because they're so small. But at the same time, in in a in this weird kind of environment, maybe between Harden and Westbrook's star power, their shooting, and just the variance of the way that team is built, maybe they do. This is like the perfect environment for uh, Houston to win it. So, so yeah, if there's two teams I think that maybe not enough people are talking about as legitimate teams that can win it, it would be Philly and Houston. But what about you? Well, I just hope that Houston doesn't match up with the Denver Nuggets after seeing that lineup that Denver deployed today in the scrimmage because they went super big. They What did they have? Nikola Jokic at the point? I yeah, they, they had Nikola Grant? Jokic yeah. at the point in a crazy, um, crazy big lineup of all bigs. And I, I agree with you in a sense. I think Philadelphia is going to be one of those like nice sleeper picks to get all the way there. I mean, I again, I have my doubts about Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid as like this one-two punch, but I picked them as well to make it to the NBA Finals, albeit against the Los Angeles Clippers at the at the start of the season. I just thought defensively, I didn't think anyone was going to penetrate, you know, that five-man lineup that they have. But again, they've been so disappointing, and their bread and butter was being a strong home squad, and now they don't even have that as like in their back pocket they don't have that as an advantage any longer yeah no that's true um so if right now would you go with the clips winning it all i would have the clippers i I just think they're the deepest team i think they've had the lakers number for most of the season i i pray that it's the clippers and the lakers in the western conference finals because that's the matchup we're all here to see uh but in seven games and of of course i have a little bit of love for Kawhi leonard after what he did for us last season you know i can't pick against him and go with uh mr lebronto (laughs) you know the funny thing is like yeah even after witnessing what Kawhi did last year and even though I can like see I agree with you the Clippers are deeper they're probably a little better built than the Lakers Mm -hmm. I still think it's enough of an even matchup that it'll go seven and like again even despite seeing what I saw from Kawhi Leonard last year I still don't know if I could ever bring myself to pick against LeBron James in a winner-take-all environment right and he, he seems to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder right. with all of all of this uh, MVP talk lately. Yeah, and the whole washed king thing and all yeah. that. Like, yeah. It, again, it's it's such a, a different environment than what we're accustomed to. We'll, we'll probably never see anything like this again as basketball fans. I'm not saying the Memphis Grizzlies are going to all of a sudden find themselves in the NBA Finals, but I don't think you know with like the top four or five seeds in each conference. I don't think there's a matchup out there that would necessarily shock me. No, exactly. And again, like. Um, like I was saying, you know, okay, I get that the Bucks have essentially been like a 60 plus win juggernaut two seasons in a row now. They got to these finals last year. But like I was saying, with with how long this layoff was, mm-hmm. like, can can we really be certain that every team is gonna look exactly the way they did? Yeah. Um, Absolutely in, not. In Mar- exactly, because the layoff was so long. So who is to say that the Bucks look the exact same and are the same juggernaut? Who's to say, um, you know, like what if in the last few months, somehow, even though it wouldn't make any sense because no one's really been training that hard, but like, I don't know, what if Doncic somehow comes back even better and also Porzingis looks even closer to the guy he was pre-injury? Like, like are the Mavs all of a sudden a threat? There are so many of these questions that we don't really know the answers to, and it'll be super fascinating to to watch it unfold. 
Well, outside of rooting for the Raptors, because I do have a home a hometown bias, I will gladly admit that. I just want to see some quality basketball at the end yeah. of the day. I think there's been such a long layoff. We don't know how any of these players are going to look when the games actually start to matter and once the playoffs roll through. So as long as we're not seeing some uh, horrid shooting fests out there and we want to change the channel, I think it will be a good thing. And at the end of the day, as long as everyone is staying healthy, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it better. Cash, you recently wrote a piece about the Toronto Raptors for the score and how they're one of the more interesting teams to watch in this bubble. And, you know, bias aside, I think they've been one of the most interesting teams to watch in the NBA this season, period. And that's because a lot of the people who wrote them off after, you know, Kawhi Leonard departed, cough, cough, Jason McIntyre, I always like <laughs> to get that shot in. But, you know, many expected a rebuild of sorts. And, and even with the roster intact, some expected a massive drop off where they might not even be in the playoff picture altogether. So as someone who attends the games and covers the team like you do, how have the Raptors found so much success this season, especially in the face of tremendous adversity with all of the injuries they've had? I think um, I think their best players came into the season somehow still underrated, despite what happened last year. Uh, that's one way I think they caught people by surprise. I think Nick Nurse... Um, as as great, I mean, his first season literally could not have gone any better. You, you can't do better than winning a championship. And yet I still think people didn't really understand how creative and how much of a mad scientist that guy could be. I think that's another yeah. reason they caught people by surprise. I think they were deeper than anyone realized. And, you know, there was a few factors. Like I go back to, uh, I actually wrote a piece the opening week and it was from me being around the team at training camp. I had spent a few days in Quebec City around the team to write this piece. And it was about... Um, how different the the way the external world viewed the, them as defending champions as compared to the way they viewed themselves internally. And now internally, they carried themselves like a team that fully believed they were capable of winning the title again. Like, I know it's there is a lot of lip service in mm -hmm. the preseason and early season, but they truly carried themselves like a team that believed that. And so I started digging into different things. And like, you know, one of the things, and I brought it up so often this season, but it's true. Like one of the things I was saying in this piece back in October was that the Raptors were this probably a great shooting team hiding in plain sight. And, you know, I kept talking about the fact that when they lost Kawhi and Danny Green and in the same week added Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Stanley Johnson, just kind of because of the way people's, you know, minds operate when it comes to sports, they saw it as like, well, they're replacing these two guys with these two guys. Yeah. You go from Kawhi and Green to two guys who literally cannot shoot, their shooting is going to be terrible, whatever. And I was saying, well, like, sit down and look at this roster. Like, what, one of the things I wrote in that opening week piece was if you looked at the projected eight or nine man rotation for the Raptors on opening night, literally every single one of them either had a career three-point shooting percentage above 35% mm. or shot 35% from three last season. So, like, every single one of their rotation pieces had shown either recently or over the course of their career that they were at worst an average to above average three-point shooter. And so then you look at what happened in the season. They finished number six in both three-point attempt rate and three-point percentage. Like there was, there were so many of these little things where I think if people had actually really sat down and looked at what this roster was under the creativity of Nurse, every indication was that they were going to be really damn good again. And people just couldn't seem to wrap their heads around that because all they could see is, well, they lost the finals MVP and a great starter in Danny Green. How are they going to be that good? Like, people underrated how much of a leap Siakam continued to make. People 
I still, I don't believe, like, understand how, but as you know, people to this day still underrate Kyle Lowry. Like, <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling, and especially for us sitting here in Toronto who watch these guys every night, but, yeah, in terms of how they were able to surprise us, because people just weren't able to see kind of what was in front of their eyes. I like asking members of the Raptors media this question just because of, of how dramatic and stressful last season got at points, obviously with you know, Kawhi Leonard's status up in the air and the drama that was that entire playoff run. Cash, for someone who's caught as much Raptors basketball as you have over the years, where does this season, you know, obviously, which still has to reach its conclusion, mind you, rank for you among all of those that you've caught and covered in terms of just your overall enjoyment? I would say probably number two, uh, like behind only last year because okay. it ended in a championship last year. And they were, you know, like I've heard a lot of people say this season's even more fun than last year because you know last year you had the quote-unquote stress of would he stay or would he go with Kawhi but personally I, I I really tried not to get too lost in the weeds with that I was just trying to enjoy you know both Kawhi being here and also just the ride that team was taking us on so I can definitely still say last season was the most fun but take the championship season out and I think this season ranks right there with any I mean they were on pace for another 58-59 win season <laughs> despite the fact that six of their top seven players all missed at least 11 games um nick nurse had to mix and match like crazy they were boxing and running you know once a week they had a 30 point frigging comeback uh against dallas like there were so many components of this season um and again just you know not to keep plugging my pieces but <laughs> like that this the opening week piece i wrote and then even you know what you mentioned the piece i wrote this week which was actually like a follow-up to that october piece mm -hmm. i mentioned how the 2019-20 Raptors are like one of the most unique teams in history because they were in the very strange position of both being reigning champions and underdogs. And and it's very rare that that happens, but um, they lived up to the building. So how many years were taken off your life during Kawhi Watch? Uh, was it rough uh, on you? <laughs> it, I don't want to say rough, but it was, it was interesting. You know, yeah. like I remember even, um, you know, you're you know how it works the score too it's a very around the clock operation so like if 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 he was going to get if the news was going to come out at 1 a.m like one of myself or joe wolf on you know the other nba feature editor, we were probably going to be writing at 1 a.m and like it yeah. ended up happening on a friday night at uh two in the morning i want to say eastern time and the next day i was driving to kingston with my family so like joe ends up writing the early morning piece and then we do a podcast literally while i'm on the road on the way to kingston and you know i remember the day of, uh, remember the day of the madness with like the CP24 chopper and all that. That day, I actually got to co-host an hour of uh, of Fan 590 radio with JD Bunkus. Oh, okay. While all that was going on. Like that was a really cool experience, but it was also, yeah, very much like, you feel like your head's on a swivel because like at any moment, I'm going to have to start like a feature on like where Kawhi went. Also, you know, deep down as like, someone who grew up a Raptors fan, I'm going to have to come to grips if he leaves with the fact that he's not here anymore. If he stays, I'm going to be so excited. I'm going to have to get my work done. I'm at the radio station. Like mm -hmm. it, I don't want to say it was, it was rough or whatever, but it was definitely hectic. And when it was over, you, even though it had only been what, six days when he signed, like it felt like it had been 60.
Cash, we are coming to a close here, but I'd love to ask you some rapid fire questions before we sign off, if you're game. Of course, always game. When I first started out at the score in May of 2015, I had this extremely bad habit of calling you Cass instead of Cash because my ears clearly weren't working and that's what I heard people around the office calling you. So so please tell the listeners what you and our former colleague William Lou put together to set me right. I can't believe so, I'm letting you tell this story, but okay. It was it was more I mean, I don't want to take credit away from Will. It was more his doing and he just happened to show it to me beforehand, uh, before he presented it to you. But yeah, essentially so for anyone that doesn't know, or like uh, yeah, my last name is pronounced Casharo. So even growing up, um, friends would call me Joe Cash, whatever, it became a mm-hmm. stick, ran with it as I got older, and then it, it got to the point, as you know, at score, where even though I always introduce myself formally as Joseph or Joe, because no one wants to be the douchebag introducing themselves as Cash, um, as you know, even though I would always introduce myself as Joseph to people, like you'd hear everyone else around the office calling me Cash. I got my bosses email me and refer to me as Cash. They don't call me Joe or Joe. It's, it's just kind of taken on a life form of its own, especially at work. And and so yeah, I guess you uh, when you first started there. Um, you know, I guess just didn't realize that it was because of my last name, maybe, and the fact that my last name was Cash Jaro, and that's where it was going with Cash. Uh, and yeah, you you would call me Cass, and I didn't have the heart <laughs> to tell you because again, again, at the end of the day, I would have been, it would have had to come down to me yeah. saying, "Hey, man, don't call me Cass, call me Cash." And to me, that's like the ultimate douchebag thing. Like I love, I love that everyone calls me that, but I don't, I don't want to be the one telling you to call me that. Mm-hmm. So. I let it, how long would you say it went on? Weeks? Months? Maybe close to uh, a year? Maybe a month. I, I don't think okay. it definitely wasn't okay. a year. If you let me <laughs> go a whole year calling you the wrong name, that's on All you, right. my friend. Okay. So it's a month. And then, um, yeah, what I remember is, uh, is around, I want to say it was around the time when I was, when I got the, the NBA supervisor job. Mm-hmm. It was around that time. And Will Lou. Um, who was the senior NBA writer at the time, literally created a PowerPoint, right? It was a PowerPoint. It definitely did, yeah. It was a PowerPoint for you, specially made for you, to explain the difference of like what you were calling me versus what to actually call me. (laughs) And he had cash in one slide and then like the next slide was cash. The next slide was like dollar bills being like this is cash this is not cast i want to say he had like a picture of a casserole in one to say like this like to i the think there was yeah yeah but anyway you get like the listeners will get the picture um yeah that was that was a classic will lou production i knew your last name was kasharo but i i swear to god i i kept hearing cast and for i didn't want to screw it up so i kept calling you cast but i turn around one day in my chair and there's this powerpoint presentation and you two are just dying of laughter and one of my more memorable shifts during my first couple of months yeah. at the score yeah i uh no i'll remember that forever and i even said like when you when you tweeted that i was going to be on the show um, I even saw Will reply to it with cast <laughs> question mark. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, oh, good, man. Times. good times, man. Good times. Uh, cash. We, does, we had does, a fun does, crew there. We did. I, I love there. I keep in touch with a number of people from the score. I have nothing but uh, fond memories there. And again, I wish everyone the best. I'm no longer with the company, but again, the friendships that I've made there, including with yourself, those will last forever. And I'm very happy 100%. about that. 
Cash, does the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels get enough love from mainstream <laughs> wrestling fans in comparison wow. to some of the more Hollywood names like Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, and The Rock? Dude, I did not see this question coming, but by the by the fact that you're asking me this, clearly you want a three-hour podcast right now. Um, <laughs> man, so HBK is the greatest. He's the GOAT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, he does not get enough love from mainstream wrestling fans. Does not get enough love from the new generation of fans that don't, just the youngins that don't respect greatness. Um, as I mentioned on my, my younger cousin, same name, actually has a wrestling podcast and had me on to talk about HBK being the GOAT because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to drop some knowledge on the youngins. As I mentioned in that podcast, if you look at his career, he was literally the first guy to do everything. Like first guy in a ladder match, first guy in an Iron Man match, first guy in a Hell in a Cell match, first guy in a Elimination Chamber match. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way uh, they scripted it so that he was like the first one to, to win the Royal Rumble despite being the first entrant. Um, you know, coming down WrestleMania coming down on the uh on the wire there um just all of that and then if when you consider the fact that like okay there have been I like there have been better technical wrestlers and there have not many but there have been because he he was underrated as a technical wrestler but sure there there have been better technical wrestlers there have been a you know a few better especially nowadays like guys in terms of like off the ropes and high-flying stuff but at the time, HBK was a little ahead of the curve there. Like some of the stuff he was doing in the early to mid '90s, not a lot of guys were doing in terms of like in the air. Mm-hmm. But again, I'll acknowledge that there's a few guys better technically, a few guys better in the air, and a few guys better on the mic. You know, The Rock, Hogan. Obviously, those guys are in a league of their own on the mic. I would challenge anyone to name me a wrestler that combined all three of those things, like HBK, like. You know, Ric Flair combined the technical wrestling and the mic work, but Ric Flair wasn't going off the top rope every five minutes and like doing crazy stuff. Like, like no. In my opinion, no one combined all three aspects of wrestling entertainment the way Shawn Michaels did, and he was just so ahead of the curve in that regard. And then if you look at like his importance to the company, you know, like he essentially ushered in the Attitude Era. You know, even if you watch documentaries about wrestling, and it's not just him saying it, it's other people saying it about like how much influence he had in the mid to late 90s on getting you know him and triple h getting vince mcmahon to go down that road and be more about attitude and be a little more raw and like adult centric um you know starting dx like what that was literally the wwf at the time's um response like to nwo and trying to save themselves in the ratings um the the attitude era which saved wwe and basically changed wrestling was ushered in because of Shawn michaels and then you incorporate all the stuff he was the first to do and like I said, in my opinion, combined all the aspects of the entertainment of WWE entertainment like no one else could. Yeah, again, I can go on for like half an hour, but in my opinion, you take all that into account and he's not the most popular of all time, especially in Canada. Uh, right. But in my opinion, he's the greatest of all time if we're talking about wrestling entertainment. Well, in Canada, he'll always be the guy who screwed Bret Hart, unfortunately. I was about to reply with, Vin- uh, Bret screwed Bret. Yeah, there you go, right there. Well, for, for anyone who hasn't seen a Shawn Michaels match, what's the one one or two wrestling matches that you would encourage someone to check out? Oh, man. Okay, can I can I say three? You, you could say as many as you want, buddy. <laughs> okay, let's say... Okay, sorry, I'm going to give you four. I'm going to give okay, you four. Go for <laughs> I'm going to say uh, HBK Razor Ramon ladder match, WrestleMania 10. Okay. Uh... Iron Man match against Bret Hart, first mm-hmm. ever Iron Man match. Um, the first of his two WrestleMania matches against Undertaker. The, um, you would know which which WrestleMania. WrestleMania was that. Like the, 25. That's like the one that's considered like the real, real classic, right? Yes. Out of the two, yeah. So that one, and then also the like retiring Ric Flair one. 
Yes, the I'm sorry, I love you, super yeah, kick to yeah. the chin. Exactly. I think if you take those four, you get a really good indication of who HBK was at various stages of his career. Just for my personal preference, his match at WrestleMania 21 with Kurt Angle, which was in a losing affair, is the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen. Wow, I, that, I did not even think of that. I do remember that, but I had not even thought of that. And yeah, it was a classic. So Cash, I thought Gamora was just a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but lo and behold, it's also an Italian crime drama that you have yeah. praised several times on other podcasts that you've done. Cash, why should I or anyone be watching Gamora? Um, because if you like crime dramas, and especially if you like mob-related stuff, it is Italian-made, made in Napoli, all the actors look at it. It's very raw and authentic, and the big part of why it's so authentic, as I've said before, is because it in no way tries to sensationalize what that life is, you know? Like, a lot of American, even great American-made mob stuff that I love, whether it's The Godfather, Sopranos, whatever it is, if you watch those movies, you come away thinking that, like, even the low-level guys are living this life of luxury and whatever and the like, but, like, in Gamora, it shows you what, like, organized crime in southern Italy and especially in Napoli really is. And that's, like, okay, like, the boss might be living this life of luxury, but literally everyone else in that family from his second in command to the soldiers on the street whatever are living in the slums and living like bums and living like low lives and i just think it's it's the most raw authentic look at um italian organized crime from from any drama i've ever seen cash where does the 2006 fifa world cup final oh. between italy and germany rank on your personal oh. list of the all-time greatest sports moments Okay, so Italy-Germany was the semi-final. Italy-France oh, was the me. final. Yes. But no, no, but I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because what I was going to say, so the, them winning it obviously is, you know, basically the only thing that surpassed it in my life from a sports perspective was Raptors winning the championship. Okay. But the semi-final against Germany, which was like a 120-minute classic where Italy, it was a scoreless game minutes away from penalties until Italy scored twice literally in the last two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that whole run you know with me as a 17 year old and playing soccer at the time was uh unforgettable and yeah till this day you know like look i remember being four years old and everyone going crazy when joe carter hit the walk off but I i'd be lying if i said i really felt the way i could feel as an adult or a teenager for you know a sporting championship back then so yeah my my two ultimates till this day remain italy winning the 06 world cup and the raptors winning the 2019 championship and yeah, uh, yes, the Raptors win is number one, but mm -hmm. the Italy winning was not far behind, man. It was that to know that the like the team, the team you support, and you know the nation that you identify with from a soccer fan's perspective, and where you know your parents were born, like to be World Cup champions, literally the most prestigious sporting title on the planet, is really like just another level of pride that. Uh, I did not think I could possibly feel for a sports team because all of mine usually, back then especially, sucked. <laughs> so I asked uh, Jordan Hales this when he was on the program just because of Scarborough, Ontario, that connection. It's in his yeah. heart just like ours. Cash, for, for everyone not from Scarborough, what are some of the best places to get a bite in the city? Oh my God, a bite. Okay, um, uh, classic uh, Johnny's Burgers at VP and Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeez, uh, I'm trying to think of like the different things. Oh man, like there's so many good like little hidden things. Like if you like Hakka food, Lynn Garden, Pharmacy and Shepherd. Uh, if you like um, jerk chicken and uh, Caribbean food, obviously there's a ton of spots. There's a place called The Grill Jerk at Midland and Steels, or like Middlefield and Steels. Um, 
fried chicken. There are so many good spots. Uh, Church's chicken is pretty good. Um, oh, there's like, I think you know this too, but what a lot of people don't realize is like the original Pizza Nova restaurant is in Scarborough. Not like, yes. it's like an actual sit down restaurant. And mm -hmm. they, I'm not exaggerating when I say they have the best panzos in the city. Um, and they also have like good pasta and like veal parm. It's like an actual sit down restaurant. And it was the original Pizza Nova restaurant from the 60s. That's what, like Birch Mountain Lawrence? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, somewhere I around. I mean, there. I could go on and on. The sushi spots. Uh, if you're into Korean barbecue, there are a lot of good spots that like aren't even chains, like little mom and pop types. But there's just so many great places. There's um, Fo 88 in Bamberg Circle, Sam Wu in Bamberg Circle. Oh man, I can go on and on. You were prepared for this question. <laughs> and you know what the funny thing is? I wasn't. That's, that's me almost panicking because I feel like I'm forgetting 11 places. But yeah, no, um, there are a lot of great places. Have you ever been to Lamana's Bakery? Oh yeah, Lamana's Bakery. Yeah, it's one of the one of the solid Italian bakeries. There's also Francesca's Bakery, another good Scarborough staple. Agent Court Bakery, Pharmacy and Shepherd, Scarborough. Yeah, yeah, all those Italian bakeries. I'm just I'm name dropping Lamana's because I hope they someone from the bakery sponsors me and uh, can hook me up with some free gelato. I think that would be great. Nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, you also wrote for the score, you wrote takeaway pieces about the Last Dance documentary chronicling Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. You're, you're a young guy, Cash, and I remember you saying on other podcasts that you've done that you never got to see Jordan in his prime and it was the second three-peat. That was your earliest MJ memories. Did, did watching that documentary change or reinforce any opinions you may have about Jordan? And what is your stance on the Jordan-LeBron James GOAT debate? Honestly, it didn't change anything for me because while I was too young to have been watching him in the 80s or like first three-peat, it's not like I wasn't aware of it, you know? Like, uh, as you know, we're obviously very in tune with the league and the history with, you know, even what uh, we do at the score. So like, I, I was aware of all that stuff. I had watched clips of all that stuff. I understood how insanely competitive, like none of that was a surprise to me and mm -hmm. didn't change my mind or anything. But I definitely think for like a younger generation, it probably was a bit eye-opening. In terms of the Jordan-LeBron debate, same thing. It didn't it didn't change anything for me. Like I've, I'm at a point where I, I think LeBron is basically as close as anyone can get to Jordan. And I would still have him like a hair behind him. Okay. But there were there are some there were some times I watched LeBron and I'm like, man, I don't know if we'll ever see as complete a basketball player as this guy. And again, like, Watching the Jordan doc didn't change that for me. It's not like I came away from thinking, actually, you know what? No, LeBron's too far away or or vice versa. I, I came out of it with the same mindset that like, I think they are in a on a planet of their own as one, two. I, I'll hear arguments either way. I'll accept arguments either way for either one of them being one, two. But if you're asking me, I'd say it's like still Jordan one, but LeBron two and like very, very close. It's basically 1A, 1B at this point. I don't think yeah. there's a wrong answer out there. Yeah, exactly. So, Cash, I know you've had a steady presence in the Raptors Republic 3-on-3 tournaments over the years. <laughs> if you had to pick three fellow writers or media members or people in the industry to play alongside you on somewhat of a dream squad, who would you select? Well, first of all, I'm not good. Um, but <laughs> I can, from being at those tournaments, I can safely say most of the people in uh, Raptors media are not good. Um, so I'm trying to think back to see, to think if like any one of those tournaments, um, like is memorable enough that I'd be like, well, I would need to that guy on my team. Like, um, hmm. Assad's pretty good. Do you follow Assad? I do follow Assad. He's pretty good from what I remember. Like I'm actually, very tall. <laughs> he is very tall. He can shoot. 
But yeah, man, in terms of like the regular media guys, and I'm, I'm not taking shots anymore because like I said, I'm not good either. But I really don't know if anyone sticks out. You know what? I'll, I'll stick with the score and say that Brandon Jordan, who uh, we had on our team this year, who actually like, you know, produces and edits all the video stuff I do is actually pretty good. And he's a giant too. Um, so maybe I'll say him and Assad like in the front court. Um, I've never gotten the chance to play with Wolfon, funny enough. But people have told me Wolfon's pretty solid, can handle the rock. Yes. Yeah, so maybe I'll go Wolfon running running point with uh, Brandon Jordan and Assad as his, as his two t twin towers. It's funny because I asked William Liu this same question and he struggled just like you did to pick a yeah. three-man no, squad. Because none of us are good, that's why. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm kind of like a Pat Bev defensive pest out there, except I can't shoot. So unless you leave me wide open from the corners, then I can nail some, but... Um, well, players like that have value out there on the court. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying, don't put don't yeah. put yourself down too much. Yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take a Westbrook knee out every now and then. There you go. With uh, with Vince Carter now retired following 22 seasons in the NBA, other than the dunk contest, because again that's too easy. What moment or game or performance from his time in the league will you remember him for the most? This one's easy for me because it was. Uh, do you remember his not his 51 point game against Phoenix in the regular season, but his 50 plus point game against Philly in I believe game in game six of that series to yes, force the a game playoff seven. Run. Yeah. Um, was there and it was my 12th birthday, so oh, okay. that to me remains like the the ultimate because. And again, I realize that's like a very personal one because it just happened to be on my birthday, but. Mm. But yeah, that's the one. Vince dropping uh, 51, I think it was. The night where he hit all the, that barrage of threes and at the time set or tied a record for uh, made threes uh, in a playoff game or in a half or something like that. But yeah, it was game six was my 12th birthday. It was to force a game seven back in Philly. I was fully convinced they were going to win it. Uh, yeah, that that was it. And also, I, I'll say that uh, the alley-oop against the Clippers, if you remember that. Uh, describe that alley-oop for me. So sometimes they blend together. It was... Uh, it was in LA um, at Staples Center against the Clippers. I can't remember if it was the 99-2000 or 2000-2001 season, but mm -hmm. it was like when they were starting to get good. And I don't remember who it was that threw the alley-oop pass. So it was the 99-2000 season. Yeah, it was like when we were starting to realize, okay, this team's probably going to make the playoffs this year. And it was like really starting to get exciting. And I don't remember who threw the pass, but Vince catches it. His arm is like barely in front of the free throw line. And one hand completes the alley-oop and the crowd in LA goes nuts and Ralph Lawler on the visiting call says like well the crowd got what they wanted and you can tell he's like he's so annoyed and the Raptors end up coming back from like a double-digit deficit in the final few minutes to win that game so yeah that, that one's up there too the Clippers fans didn't have a lot to root for at that time so a Vince no. Carter alley-oop was probably one of the highlights of their season yeah uh Cash last question here I noticed you posted some of his numbers on Twitter recently is Danilo Gallinari the greatest Italian NBA player of all time? Yes. Yes, he is. Um, he's also like, yeah, because listen, um, you know, people have this like perception out there that Italian Canadians or Italian Torontonians probably love Bargnani. I, that could not have been further from the truth. It was the opposite. Most Italian basketball fans I know could not stand Bargnani because he was the antithesis of what Italian athletes usually are. Like Italian athletes, you know, if anyone who watches Italian soccer knows like, if anything, we're too passionate. We care too much. We're too much hothead. Like there's all that stuff. And also like the one thing you can never take away from them is their like consistent effort. And yes, Bargnani was none of the, he was literally the opposite of all those things. So I don't know an Italian 
Canadian, Italian, Torontonian, Italian basketball fan that rooted for Bargnani. Um, Gallo, uh, Bellinelli, those guys, uh, even Niccolo Melli uh, this year. I like all those guys, but Gallo for me is the best Italian ever. And I think um, he remains a very underrated NBA player. Like, yeah, he's, he's you know, not a good defender, but he is so, so, so good offensively that he mitigates all that. And uh, for me, if he's like your number two scorer and you have solid defensive pieces around him, I think he's a really, really great piece because he scores efficiently in like every conceivable way and he's a foul drawing magnet. So um, super, super valuable offensive player. Well, Cash, we could do an entire podcast about how disappointing Andrea Bargnani was in Toronto. We could do an entire podcast about how Shawn Michaels is the GOAT of professional wrestling. But my man, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm extremely fortunate to have worked alongside you for as long as I did at The Score. You had my back every step of the way, and I'll never forget that. And the feeling is still mutual on that front to this day. Before I let you go, buddy, please let the listeners know where they can find you on the web. Uh, find me on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo, uh, on Instagram at Joe, I think underscore, underscore, underscore cash, <laughs> but just, just search my full name. I'll pop up and, uh, and yeah, you know, hopefully everyone has the score app and you can read my stuff in the long form section there in the feature section, pound the rock, the podcast. And then lastly, like I said, uh, if anyone's into like YouTube and, and watching five to 10 and then sometimes 15 to 20 minute videos about various goings on in the NBA every week please subscribe to uh, our YouTube channel as well. Cash, not Cass. Thanks again, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It was a blast. And uh, all the things you said about me, you know, right back to you. And that was my interview with the scores, Joseph Cacharo. Like he plugged, please follow him on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo. If you're looking for the spelling of his name, you can find it in the episode description. I really enjoyed that interview, and I meant it. If he ever wants to come on and crap on Andrea Bargnani for an hour or even continue to praise Shawn Michaels some more, I'm all for it. Um, I'm sure I'll differ from the norm at some point with this interview format, and those two topics are right up my alley, so we'll see what happens down the road. I want to thank Cash, of course, for taking the time out of his night to join me on the show. I also want to thank my audio engineer, Jason Lung, for all of his hard work in putting this show together. If you have any audio questions or concerns or want him to work on your show or podcast, please reach out to him on Twitter at jlung20. On next week's show, I'll be joined by former Toronto Raptors and current Chicago Bulls broadcaster, Chuck Swarski. I'll be recording that show on Tuesday morning, so keep your eyes peeled to the feeds because I may end up releasing that show sooner rather than later. He's a massive guest, of course, and one I didn't foresee myself ever being able to talk to, but the stars have aligned, my friends, and you'll be getting that interview next week. This has been episode 12 of the Walder Sportscast. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review if you like what you heard. You can find all of our shows on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Podbean, and wherever it is that you download your podcasts. That's another one in the books, so I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Walder Sportscast. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes and follow Chris on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports.